You're listening to the Talk Editions podcast, episode nine with Madison Greenstone. It's like this sort of secret embodied knowledge. I have this romantic like vision where the bees teach you how to take care of them. <laughs> I'm Laura Cox. I'm the flutist of Talk. And I'm Taylor Brooke, composer and technical director of Talk. And today we're interviewing Madison Greenstone. Madison Greenstone is a clarinetist currently based between San Diego and New York City. Her creative practice encompasses contemporary and experimental music, improvisation, noise and acoustic feedback, and band-like working practices with other creative performers. She has performed as a featured artist of the Darmstadt Ferien Chorus for Neue Musik and the Lucerne Festival Academy. Notable performances have been as a soloist presented by Itchy Project Room, as part of the Merce Cunningham Centennial in Los Angeles, and in recital at the Vigland Mausoleum in Oslo. Madison is a founding member of the Switch Ensemble and can be heard on Vondelweiser Editions and Another Timbre. Madison is also a doctoral candidate at UC San Diego and received her bachelor's degree from the Eastman School of Music. So we're going to get started off with the really important questions here. And I think this is the most important question I could possibly ask someone who's part of my Woodwind family. Why did you pick the clarinet, Madison? Why did I pick the clarinet? What do you love about it? <laughs> well, I mean, what I love about the clarinet now is probably a little bit different than what I loved about the clarinet when I first picked it. Fair. Because I, like, first started playing when I was nine, and I don't really remember this happening, but, like, apparently what happened is I, like, came home one day after, after elementary school and, like, announced to my parents that I was going to play the clarinet, and they were like, okay. Sure. Um, like, why not? And I'd been playing guitar before that, but really disliked it with a passion. Um, and so I think also part of it was that like a friend who was a year older had like offered to give me clarinet lessons. And I was like, yeah, like I want to hang out with my friend. Like, why not? Why not play the clarinet? And that's kind of been like the story ever since. I think a, a intense burning hatred of playing guitar is a really important origin story. No, I mean, it wasn't intense hatred. It was just, well, it was. <laughs> like, I remember, like, having these pickup sticks that I would draw across the strings of the guitar and, like, wish it was the cello or something like this. <laughs> and it wouldn't resonate. And I would get so, like, sad. I was like, why does this not sound like a cello? I'm playing it like a cello with these pickup sticks. Weird from day one. I love it. So, so that's interesting that it was... Um kind of a way to spend time with this friend of yours that you admired and you say it's sort of, that sort of continued um so yeah. do you do you see like playing the clarinet or playing music in general as mostly like a, a, a sort of a means of social interaction or or sort of engaging with people oh absolutely absolutely like 100 percent. i think like my general trajectory like through music making and into like kind of specializing in contemporary music has largely been about the people and has largely been about like discussion and about just like a working practice and like a I don't want to say collaborative dialogue but just like a generative creative dialogue like I I got into doing contemporary music or working with composers because like when I was in high school I found that the composers were like thinking about the nature of music in really like exciting ways that I didn't find that other performers were because people were like preparing their concerti and like practicing their orchestral excerpts or practicing their band music and like 
that was all fine, but I also really like needed to like talk about the nature of music and to like try to get get hold of that and get a grasp of that. And so these people were elbow deep in that. And so I naturally just gravitated. And that gravitational force like towards people who are doing that questioning has just been like my compass or my North Star, you know, that has like guided me throughout music making, like up into the present. Great. Yeah. So it's like a combination of collaboration with other people and also sort of music as you know self-realization a little bit too sounds like mm. what do you mean by what do you mean by self-realization <laughs> like like um be, in, in the way that you described it there it wasn't so much necessarily what the music sounded like in the end but more about sort of the process of discovery yeah and so that's what i mean by self-realization yeah absolutely yeah, yeah and like yeah. like even now like in the working relationships that I hold most dear and that feel, you know, very long lasting, it's often not about the product. It's about the process of going somewhere. And like, oftentimes what happens is that like these conversations or whatever, these processes will be going on for years. And then I, we can suddenly look back and say like, Oh, like, damn, like we've made a lot. And like, this is really, this is really profound, the sort of dialogue and attention to ephemera that has all fed into like what the practice is and not thinking like, okay, we have this date, this time, like what's, you know, what's the price tag or like, what are the, what are the details? But like this real kind of musical material upsurge that just sort of happens through dialogue. That's been super important, having that distinction. Yeah. So speaking of having to be productive um you've had to learn a fair amount of music really quickly since you joined talk can you tell us about some of the ways you approach internalizing um a few programs worth of stuff yeah um so this can kind of be traced back to when i was preparing to audition for talk like laura had contacted me about that in may i think 2019? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and we kind of set a date in July. And so I was like, okay, like this is really, this is a lot of time. And this is something I really care deeply about. And I want to put in the right kind of time, you know, to prepare for this. So what that entailed and what that has set up for future performances was like really, really exact score study. And like, practicing it in a way where I was also hearing all the other parts in my head like while I was playing and doing score study to an extent where it's like okay like I can preempt the cues that I would either need to like give or receive or watch out for for tempi changes for you know bringing out the Hauptstimme or the soloist line for you know 2D unison textures and that kind of preparation in theory and then also like listening to recordings um that you know you you all did where i was like oh like the score says this but like they're actually cueing it this way and like maybe that tells me about something like as people and like what they need as musicians and also their their approach to interpretation or also maybe just like the confines of that recording session like i don't know um but that helped like hone this really precise mental image of how I needed to fit in 
in order to like hit the ground running. So that kind of preparation in the audition process was like absolutely invaluable for preparing for this season's concerts. You know, like, I don't think if I'd done that kind of work, the amount of time we would have had for rehearsal would have been enough. So it was like out of necessity. It's like, I have to know this as well as I can, as thoroughly as I can, as early on as I can in order to just like jump right in. And even even still, things change, you know, because <laughs> then you put it into practice and everything's different, you know, and you have to realize how those deviations are going to occur and try to predict for them. Yeah. So, Matt, as uh, the newest member of TAC, do you have any like sick, juicy secrets you want to tell all million people who will listen to this? <laughs> Sick juicy secrets. The secret um, insights. <laughs> secret insights. Well, I think an insight that I came to um, early on was that, and maybe I already told you this, but like the, the process of interpretation or where interpretation is as I come in now as a new member, like to me really reflects the time you all put into like learning this music together. You know, so like, all these like little things around like cueing and balance and dynamics and articulation that are as much like an index of like, like interpretation of scores and like musical interpretation. It's like, it's also really like how you all learned it, mm -hmm. you know, and like so much as what you all needed to do in order to do it <laughs> in a way, which to me was like really fascinating. Like I hadn't thought of like, historical practice quote-unquote in that way before but like the interpretation now obviously bears a history of its learning and its continual learning and that's something I think is like super present yeah and also certainly like the like traces of verbal communication about a piece with the composer that don't necessarily get you know reflected in when it gets distributed yeah yeah that's true it's true yeah, it's like this sort of secret embodied knowledge. You know? It's like, oh, this person said this thing and it consciously or unconsciously not, it like affects how you then approach interpretation and approach your instrument performance. Yeah. I mean, I also feel like the first couple rehearsals we were doing, like I had to kind of like learn a new language in a way, you know, like the language of like how talk talks to each other. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like- I can't imagine what you mean. <laughs> I mean like the weird riffing that like you and Marina do <laughs> like that was I mean at first I was like what's going on I, I completely identify with that reaction Taylor used to always say like when you and David are talking I have no idea what you're talking about yeah sometimes sometimes I literally can't follow what they're talking about it makes me feel like I'm from another generation but also when we asked Taylor to join TAC, we went over to his house and we all kneeled down and asked him to marry us. And I think he was very confused because <laughs> we didn't really give him any context. Weird plug in his Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a, a, a nice memory. Yeah. But like that, that, that language is also just like, it's so personal and genuine and just like, yeah, like non-contrived in a way that like TAC just seems to exist in the world is this like very like idiosyncratic way of people being together and like kind of expressing love for each other. You know? We got that love. So 
Last year, Madison, you were living between San Diego and uh, and New York, or rather the East Coast in general, rehearsing. Um, so what was it like kind of switching between that contemplative space of studying for your your PhD at UCSD versus this sort of this kind of intense rehearsal processes that you were doing? That's a good question. And I feel like if you were to ask me that every month leading up to now, I would have very different answers for that. <laughs> <laughs> because it was really up and down in total. Um, I mean, of course it was amazing, you know, to like be able to play chamber music at a really, really high level, like more consistently than I have been able to in the past, you know, because of school or, you know, just things. Locationality, yeah. 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 So like having that kind of rock just was like really exciting for me. And also like learning this music was really exciting and like starting to, you know, dip my toes into like a whole different scene, you know, and a whole different group of people and meeting a lot of people. And um, I mean, for for a doctorate, it, like it made me really realize how amazing an opportunity it is to like be in school and to like have space just to like work on your stuff like work on your research practice and perform you know programs and collaborations or whatever that like don't have a price tag you know that you can just sort of take a long time to work on um and I hadn't really like realized that before like what a gift being in school was it was always just something that I did because I didn't feel ready you know or I felt like I still needed time or space or whatever but this past this past year like made me really realize like what what a privilege it is to have space to think about things not saying that in New York there's no space to think about things but like yeah yeah but it's it's a different mode yeah, yeah, but yeah, in school, it does provide that space, and it'll. It's a privilege to be able to sort of say, "What do? What am I interested? What do I want to do?" And so that sort of brings me to something uh, that I'm really interested in asking, uh, because you you do a lot of collaboration, and you do a lot of collaboration with mechanical and robotic instruments, or people who create music with mechanical and robotic mm-hmm. um, instruments, and I'm just wondering what you find interesting about playing with robots or, or, or doing like robot music collaborations? Okay. So I think we have to backpedal a little bit in order to like, pedal get, us a back, good take us there. get a good answer. Flashback 2011. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but seriously in 2010, 2011, I was a freshman at Eastman and just like kind of, very curious and all over the place and like really got into like Harry Perch <laughs> and like like him as an instrument instrument builder and as like music theorist and kind of also theorist of language mm-hmm. in this really strange way that's like opposite to Wagner and I was like just doing a little bit of research and found that there's this guy in the Bay Area where I'm from named Paul Drescher who was an instrument builder and like had done, you know, recommissions and rebuildings of some of Harry Parch's instruments. And I think I was like 18 and just like wrote him an email (laughs) 
get it. It's like, hey, like I'm going to be in the Bay Area for the summer, and I'm like really interested in building instruments. Can we build something together? <laughs> and Paul was so generous, and Rebecca was like, yeah, like we can, you can come to my studio like once or twice a week, and I'll just show you around and the tools and you know what's there and we can build something together so we ended up making this like little hairy parch instrument the surrogate kathara which had like mm-hmm. three strings you know it's like basically a wooden shoebox with three with three strings and i remember he was showing me around the workshop which like the walls just had layers and layers and layers and layers of tools on them like very, very specific kinds of tools for very specific actions. And he said something that has really stuck. And that was like, he liked contemplating the material history of every tool and that it was made to do a very specific thing and that someone had thought about it doing that specific thing and the need for that thing to be done. Mm. And like, as an 18 year old, I was like, like mind blown, (laughs) like, it's like thinking at the interstices of like space or the interstices of like what kind of objects are possible. So yeah, that's kind of like where it started. And, you know, for Eastman, it was always kind of like in the back of my brain, like I was always sketching out like little like speculative sound installations or like instruments or whatever, like sonic labyrinths. And I looked through a notebook recently and just like the name like Alvin Lucier. <laughs> It's like written on a page and like Lamont Young. It's like, oh, okay, like the shit started early. Um, and so when I got here in San Diego, I was very, very fortunate to come into contact with Brian Jacobs. We were kind of in the same incoming class. And I think at the end of 2016, he just sent me an email with a picture of like this half 3D printed clarinet joint. <laughs> And he was like, hey, like, I'm working on this project for mechanical clarinets. Do you want to, like, make something together? And I was like, yeah, (laughs) that sounds really interesting. And so that started this, like, really lovely, like, two-year, year-and-a-half working process and, like, working relationship where we would, like, meet and he would bring in different like clarinet joints that he'd 3d printed and was like explaining like oh like these solenoids you know they can move faster than human fingers so fast that they become hot to the touch and if you sync them up between different clarinets like they can reach a level of precision that is way higher than any human could possibly strive for so we just worked together and like made like duo performances and I did my best to like provide like kind of feedback on like the acoustics of the clarinet in a way that would like make the placement of the solenoids make sense and it was just like really it was really lovely and like that's a project that I look back on with like great fondness and like I really really hope that at some point in the future it'll pick back up I don't know if it will it's possible we might have both like moved on but can I ask a, a an interjecting clarifying question here both for myself and forever anyone else who might be in the same uh, intellectual bucket as me but can you explain what the fuck a solenoid is oh it's like a depressor right mm. yeah yeah. Uh, yeah it's like it's like a, a, a small mechanical object that when you 
you know, feed it a certain amount of voltage, I believe it sort of like, it, pu it pushes a, a metal uh, joint yeah. forward. So you can use it to press things. Oh, cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think that's how Brian conceived of the piccolo piece. Like, it's just pressing on the keys. But like, mm. in this case, the solenoids were like taking over the role of fingers. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, kind of going from that, like for my MA thesis, I like wrote a paper about these mechanical clarinets, like kind of trying to do like a reading through Adorno and like composition and like where the locus of composition was in these clarinets. Like, was it in like the max patch or like, was it the literal physical composition of the instruments? Was it how the solenoids, you know, interacted? Was it our overblowing of like just through the instruments and like kind of intuitive choice making. And I think that initial foray into that world of like instrument building was like hugely, hugely influential and like led me to people obviously like David Tudor and like Suzanne Thorpe and Stefan Moore and like people who have a connection to the sort of like history of American experimentalism and a real way and from there it became this interest in like oh like you know like cybernetics or like these sort of material setups or rigs that could also be interpreted as instruments themselves but also as like iterations of performance and that like kind of exploding with the ontology of like what the work is or what the instrument is or what the composition is where it's all kind of there are all kind of in dialogue in this very dynamic way mm -hmm. has been really, really influential and really, really important. And it's like a little bit on hold now because of all this like scholarly work or academic work and traveling. But like, this is definitely something that I want to like, like keep a finger on and like continue to try to like hone into yeah, and I'm yeah. curious about that too because I think that oftentimes when I think about the the music that is very Madison, it's music that feels um, virtuosic, but especially intellectually virtuosic to me. Right there are these like massive kind of like intermeshed lattices of intellectual shit going on that supports it and backs it up, and especially not just in the composition, but in the way that you approach them. And I'm wondering if you could talk about you know, you're obviously doing a lot of intellectual work right now with your um, academic obligations, but, you know, your intellectual scope isn't limited to that. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your your processes of reading and writing that are taking up so much of your time right now, certainly your pro processes of, of playing, of practice, kind of like how these all intermesh to become mm. Madison. That's a good question. I don't know. You're yeah. a rambly one, so do with it what cool. you want. <laughs> just, just out of curiosity, what, what pieces are you thinking about? So, well, okay, so I think Trevor's piece that I heard you play in... 2018. 2018 no, 2017. 2017. I mean, like, that, I feel like, plunders the depths of what I would call, like, intellectual virtuosity. So, wait, um, sorry, you say Trevor's piece. Who is Trevor? Trevor Bacha. Sorry, yeah, what, what, is, what is the piece you're talking about? Sorry. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Merker. Um, Merker by Trevor Bacha is a solo bass clarinet piece that I played on my master's recital in 2017 alongside a piece by Martin Ronnebauk, which was 
which we had worked on together and which was written for me and alongside um, Luigi Nono, Alpierre Delazzuro Silencio Anchiatum, <laughs> um, which I was actually thinking you were thinking of that, you know, like the, the Nono and Loch and Mon and... I mean, the, the, hearing you play that and talking with you about that piece really stuck with me as this like deep exercise into the way that we just like think about something as we're approaching playing it. I feel like, you know, there's a lot of different ways that as performers, our performerly intuition gets exercised mm. in the execution of a piece. And I feel like your intellectual performerly intuition is so vibrant and was just so very clear in your playing of that piece you know, the the really virtuosic command that you have of the ability to intellectualize different aspects of a piece. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you want to say anything about it. So I guess I'll approach that at an angle, like what I'm working on right now. Um, right now I've been like reading and thinking a lot about material imminence, like latent within the material configuration of an instrument, like particularly like how Nozorlok works and like the tuning of the cello to like sort of to the quote unquote wolf tone or like this range of frequencies um, and thinking about like how these really chaotic emergent phenomena like help shape an attention to those phenomena that then create the unfolding of the piece. Like there's no score, but like the sound that comes back to one, like through performance acts as a virtual score. And this sort of sustained study of this piece and of this performance practice, like around, <laughs> around the piece um, has been really, like it's been really fruitful and like thinking about my own way of approaching contrabass clarinet and like the work that I'd started to do there and also approaching like the work that I do with John McCallan um, and also approaching like an interest in like timbre as latent musical material, you know, in ways where it's like, okay, like, you know, if I'm playing something on the contrabass planet and there's this like really chaotic action going on, there are many ways you can deal with it. One is that you can like really try and bear down and like control it and like, you know, see where the limits of that control break down and like in what sonically real ways, like does it just sort of like peak out on one tone or does it disappear? Or do you lose the fundamental or, and I think this work that I've been doing has really been like teaching myself how to hear in a way that like is simultaneously like balancing control and attentiveness to like the sound that is happening and also to like the material pushback or feedback of the instrument to me, like the way it, like I touch the instrument, but like the way it touches me back and like influences the way that I then play it. So, I mean, I used to do like a lot of this sort of like new music, like multiphonic improv or whatever. And like over the past year, just from circumstances, like I've been taking time off from doing that and like doing, you know, this reading and writing and thinking has kind of in a fundamental way, like shifted my perspective of like my approach to that kind of creative music making that is really like in response to the instrument, but is also like attentive to like the physical agency and how it changes the sound. 
Yeah. <laughs> like that's great. like, that's an example of, that's I think what you're great talking example. about. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And that, that sort of, um, that sort of answers my next question, but maybe I can ask something piggybacking on that a little bit. Um, Cause I've, I've always had the impression um, sort of in the limited amount that I've worked with you that you are particularly sensitive uh, to the timbre of your instrument and sort of tonal flexibility, the details of, of playing multiphonics. It was uh, quite striking in the one recording session we did and also just sort of hearing your performances. Um, so I guess I'm wondering what, is this something, is this an approach that you've always had or was there, is there sort of a moment of realization about sort of what you value uh, in terms of what you play or, or, or is what, what you already sort of described about sort of your your recent research and reading um is that that what has sort of like made you the type of musician that you are i suppose mm. well i think i've always intuitively had like a sense for like how the instrument pushes back you know and feeling like i'm in dialogue with that instrument and there's like these negotiations that are set up and that the instrument has its will and volatility and i think like my like kind of explicit interest in multiphonics as such, like started happening like at the end of my time at Eastman and really started to take shape when I was in Cologne because like before coming to UCSD, I lived in Cologne and like didn't have a lot of friends except, you know, like Heather Roche and like people kind of in that crew and was just like practicing a lot kind of on my own and like was playing a lot of multiphonic pieces because I was like, oh, like it's two tones, like they have company. Oh, you know? it, was your it was just like, <laughs> like very, I don't know. I love that. I think I think you guys are the first person. You're the first people I have told about that. But it's like, oh, like these two tones, like have company. Like they can, like you know, have a dialogue with each other. Like you know, it's this way of like manifesting multiple presences. And I think that has always been like an undercurrent in like my love for that kind of playing, but also like thinking about timbre more broadly, playing chamber music, like you feel all these different gravitational forces in terms of intonation, articulation, tone color, you know, um, dynamic. And like, I've always felt myself just like very flexible in embouchure and therefore like wanting to like be pulled in those multiple directions. It's like, oh, when I play with Laura, I'm always, I'm obviously gonna like play in a way that's different than if I was just like playing with Marina. Like, you know, you always are just sort of like massaging the sound, you know, as a way of like getting at intonation or, or a sort of timbral alignment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Does that, does that make sense? Well, that's, I mean, that's great. I, I actually really love this, that kind of, um, analogy of of multiple notes being like notes to keep each other company yeah i love it it's kind of like taking clarinet lessons because you have a a friend yeah, yeah. and and it's it's and it really it reinforces a lot of what you've been talking about to, uh, or and, and and sort of the the thought behind i think laura's earlier question of like uh, of like when she said like a madison like piece one that has a lot of sort of um thought behind it because it, it really requires to conceive of the multiphonic in that way requires a, a sort of intellectual reflection, I think. Mm -hmm. 
or at least that's that's sort of how I see it. Yeah, it's not just an execution. Reminds me of the of the like twelve tone music is democracy argument. Yeah, where you really you really have to sort of like abstract it and, and sort of think think about its component parts for it to make sense. Yeah. Well, okay. So yeah. to that end, like since you brought up twelve tone music, like I wanted to like bring in like a little Schoenberg quote. Who like I think at the end of the harmony layer, he writes that like you know like pitch or free, like pitch is actually just a subset of timbre <laughs> you know like frequency is a subset of like the composite of like all the harmonics and so it's interesting to then like think of timbre and think of frequency and pitch like in this way where it's actually like timbre is the greater frame and like fastness of oscillation is like a subset of that greater frame mm-hmm well, that's interesting too, because I know like when we were working on our nations, of course, like we spent a lot of time figuring out what timbres we needed to, to play with to get the best like tuning results. And um, yeah. 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 And just like instrumental response too. Yeah. Well, so I wonder if we should move on to some of these questions about Madison as a person. Oh, okay. Here's mine. Oh, let's hear it. Was there a particular piece of music or experience that shaped you as a musician and helped bring you where you are now? So many. Um, well, I mean, okay, like, I guess I have to talk about this. If we're talking about, like, a sort of narrative, you know, like, I think meeting Jason Thorpe Buchanan, who's now one of the directors of Switch, like, when we were at Eastman, has been, like, hugely, hugely influential. Yeah, like he came to Eastman when I was a sophomore there. So like, I, know, I was like 19 or something. And he, he was a doctoral student and we just like became very good friends like very early and like he wrote a quartet for me and like he's always just been very like he's just been a presence in my life like now obviously like in a more professionalized way through switch and the sort of performances and artistic direction that that but also just from like an early age of just like having someone who's like equally as enthusiastic about contemporary music and the sort of like extrapolative thinking to talk to. Yeah. Well, then a sharp left turn here. If you, you know, if you didn't end up in music, this is one of my favorite questions to ask people, even though it's yeah. kind of a douchey question, but like okay. if you didn't end up in music, do you have any like secret fantasies of where you might have ended up mm. or you know yeah in whatever verb tense feels appropriate <clears throat> um yeah I was thinking about this thing that question and I think like maybe I would be a translator mm. Ooh. yeah 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 <laughs> but then I also have to like reconcile like this deep need for just like thinking through movement you know but I, like being like working on translation, the little bit of done, like there's something so satisfying about like kind of constantly like trying to get to the get to a core or like use translation as a way of interpreting something, you know, like the, the words you affix to certain things that are like kind of ineffable, like is is a mode of interpretation and it's always like malleable and you can kind of, you know, continue to play around with that forever you know and like continue to come up with different inflections and interpretations um and to me that's like 
very close to music interpretation. It's like, oh, like there's a set of symbols and it like says something to me, like completely ineffable, but I still try to like communicate that. Mm. So yeah, I, I feel like translation would be really fun. Like I've always loved languages. Like I studied French all through high school and into Eastman and I learned, I was studying German at Eastman and it always just like felt really good in my brain. Mm -hmm. It was like a brain massage, you know? <laughs> Languages are a good brain massage. It's a good brain massage, but I don't know, maybe also like a dancer because I still need to like, I feel like I move around a lot and like I kind of have to move around in order to like feel like myself. Like even just like talking, I'm always like moving my hands and like being very like physically expressive. And yeah, I feel like, I don't know, like someone like Yvonne Rayner is really, is really inspiring to me. Or like Merce Cunningham and like, yeah, the sort of like dance movement performance art. You can't see this people, but she's doing some Rucko movements right now. And we got, we got the zoom going, so I'm seeing them. Diagonal slides. <laughs> Diagonal slides and sweeps. <laughs> um, so I'll continue the lightning round now. Um, um, I like this question. Um, what do you think enriches your creative practice, but might not be directly related to clarinet playing or even music making? Who? <laughs> okay, so in the in the doc where that question lived, like I'd almost made a comment that said Walter Benjamin, and then. I <laughs> You need to get roasted. <laughs> <clears throat> Walter Benjamin I mean, is a fine answer, Madison. Yeah. That's, a, that's a fine answer. Yeah, but yeah. like reading from that period of time, you know, like turn of the turn of the 20th century, like German literature, and then also like the French fallout after the war. Like, I don't know. Like for me, that's a time period that like really speaks to me. So like, I mean audiences won't be able to see this but my arm has been resting on this big island in Jennings Walter okay Benjamin. just uh for the for the <laughs> spectator here that's about a five inch binding it's like that's a big old ass book yeah and like if you turn my computer around you'll see a stack of books that's like on the bottom the arcades project next up Martin J downcast eyes the denigration of sight in 20th century philosophy 20th century French philosophy on top of that Georges Perec you know life a user's manual then blank forms <laughs> yeah so that's I also that's i will say answer. that whenever madison like this kind of goes back to one of our earlier questions but whenever madison's in new york i'm always like oh madison like how are you feeling well she's like i miss my books <laughs> and then when she gets home i get a picture of her books and she's like i'm so happy i miss them yeah you know the, the more common answer to that question would be something like cooking <laughs> <laughs> or like dogs or, or, or like yeah, no, or, I like yeah, your yeah something like that. But I, I like your answer. Um, yeah, uh, continental philosophy. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. But yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. like situationists. It's so good. Yeah. This okay. is a question that, listen, it doesn't make any sense. But, okay, <laughs> I have to say, I was like, what's a, what's a good uh, lightning round question for Madison? And then I was trying to think about, like, when I think Madison... And I think Madison interacting with the world, because these questions have been about like other ways you interact with the world. Like, okay, do you feel like when you're outside and there's air around you, right? Because of course there's air around you. How do you feel like you interact with the air around you? Hmm. That's a really good Because I feel like okay, I don't want to never mind. Answer how you think about this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So 
that's a good question. That's a good question, Taylor. Recently, when I've been going on walks and stepping outside, I've been like really attuned to smell. Mm-hmm. Just like maybe it's springtime. Maybe it's just like I'm not getting outside so often because social distancing and writing and everything. But like, I've just been loving smelling things. Like I have this walk in San Diego where like, <laughs> it's like all my favorite smelling places. <laughs> so one of one is like by this like orange tree, like, you know, kind of down the hill. And like, there's a nice like rosemary grove, like kind of up the road. And then like, if you walk over a little bit, take a couple left turns, like we'll get to this like evening primrose tree where all the primroses just like, hang down and like I'm short enough where I can walk underneath it and they just sort of like graze the top of my head and I always just like turn up and like (laughs) it just catches me by surprise every time you know so that's like that's been my special relationship with air recently is just like loving smelling flora um name a book article film or other piece of art that has changed your life recently? I don't know. Well, this isn't so recent, but I feel like the reverberations are still strong. And like, they might be getting stronger, actually. But I read a couple years ago, um, Crash and Orca's Sayobo There Below. And oh, it's so good. It's so good. It's so beautiful. We'll link to that in the episode notes. It's like, it's exquisite. It's an exquisite book. And it's like, been really formative too in thinking about like non-subject subjectivity you know and like time in that way because like all these chapters they're like really vivid descriptions of places oftentimes like one is of this buddhist temple another is of like the um the alhambra mm. one is of this like no dancer preparing for a performance and the way the language works is that it like circles around these particular situations and these particular objects in a way where like every time it returns it's always slightly different and like it just really captures beautifully just like the constant malleability and the constant flux you know kind of like the Heraclitus flux you know you never return to the same river twice and it has like it kind of clicked when for me like reading Merleau-Ponty where he's like oh like the subject like touches you back like the thing that you're touching like it also touches you back so like I don't know I feel like I was more receptive to that thinking because I read that piece of fiction or that that book okay so we have uh yeah so we have the would you rather questions now yeah all right and the you also have to say why okay so would you rather be a professional surfer or a professional beekeeper beekeeper why um, because Taylor's nodding I, in deep affirmation. <laughs> yes. Um, because they're animals and I like want to tend, I want to tend to them. And there's this way where like the bees teach you how to, I don't know, this is totally my projection, but like I have this romantic like vision where the bees teach you how to take care of them. <laughs> and like, you also get to be outside and it smells good. And, you know. That's a surprisingly good answer to a, to a not great question. Oh, oh, offense taken. <laughs> no, would you? Sorry, okay. would you rather Taylor, questions Taylor, are never good? Is, but that was a good answer. The trick of academia—you just get all these questions that like you kind of don't know what to do with, and then like 
you make it work and like See, that's how that's you... going to be oh, one yeah. of the questions on your quals oh yes I've, I've learned these tricks as well um okay would you rather have everything you eat taste like corny song pickles or valentina i wrote this question i'm sorry um can you give me some background on what valentina's is really good hot sauce yes hot sauce but it's like kind of vinegary oh yeah it's vinegary garlicky it's good I mean, well, I <laughs> <laughs> and you have to say why without knowing what it tastes like. Okay, I would use parmesans <clears throat> because I know what they taste like, and they're like it's like a lot of taste for a little packet, and I'm like, oh my god, yeah, you know, you don't need that much. It's like, mm, like got my got my sodium in for the day. I think I'm good. Yeah, you're like I'm I'm tired of you. I'm tired of tasting you all the time, but at least I respect you. <laughs> yeah. Cornish pickles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, this is another really good question, courtesy of me. Would you rather only able be able to drink hot water or only be able to drink cold water if those are the okay. only beverages you could drink? Like no I coffee, think, nothing else. Like how hot is hot? Like um, as hot as you like to drink your coffee. Okay, I think hot water because I get cold very easily. And in the winter, if I could only drink cold water, I think I would be suffering this is the <laughs> content i crave yeah yeah and like even if it's hot outside i can always just like wear less clothes but still drink hot water and just like have a really good sweat you know mm. like i love a good sweat mm -hmm. would you rather live in a field of flowers or a pine forest pine forest yeah because yeah it's mysterious like the pine forest like the trees like cover themselves up i'm like you're always like going through it, like wanting more, like wanting to like build a complete understanding of this pine forest, but it's like impossible because like it's you're never able to have an entire understanding of it at the same time, like contemporaneously. So yeah, that's how I would fit pine forest. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? Listen, I don't think I have any more questions for you, Mad. No. That was a lot of that, questions. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> you are so wonderful. It's so nice to see you and chat with you. Yeah. Yeah, you too. Oh my god, I miss you guys so much. Major like, miss. I really, really miss. I can't wait to hug you both. Holy fuck. Yeah. Yeah. This has been the Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 9, with Madison Greenstone. The audio at the beginning of this episode was a live recording of Madison Greenstone playing Dal Niente by Helmut Lachenmann. Stick around to hear another live recording of Madison playing A Pierre de l'Azzurro Silencio Inquietum by Luigi Nono, with her colleagues Michael Matsuno on bass flute and Jacob Sundstrom on electronics. If you're enjoying the Talk Editions podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it so others can find us. This episode was produced and recorded by Taylor Brook and Laura Cox, and edited by Marina Kifferstein. For more information about Talk, go to talkensemble.com or find us on your social media platform of choice. Thanks for listening.
Thank uh-huh. you.